coming to the end of 1 Samuel, and it is important as we approach the end of this book that you remember that you're actually not at the end of the book. Remember, Samuel is actually one book, and it was not divided into two, into 1 and 2 and Samuel until uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Septuagint. So there's a reason why as you're moving along, as you come to these final chapters, it's not really feeling like an ending, and that's because you're actually right in the middle, <laughs> still at this point, even though uh, you're winding down. But we're going to look at these uh, four chapters tonight of First Samuel and continue to see really these uh, astounding pictures being presented regarding uh, the anointed. And what is so fascinating is you continue to see this good news of what Jesus is going to do when he, as the true Lord's anointed, arrives. That lens is very helpful for some of the things that we see David doing. Uh, we're coming into a section that I, you read the, the scholars and writers, and they really struggle with some of the things that uh, David is about to do. And I think with the lens of understanding this being a foreshadowing of the Lord's anointed and the good news of Jesus, that helps us significantly in looking at these images of David. Chapter 27 of 1 Samuel uh, is where we begin. It is interesting to see what David says in his heart and in his mind at this point. Because we've noted that in in, uh, chapter 24, as well as in chapter 26, David has preserved Saul's life. And after doing so, each time Saul has said, okay, I'm not going to pursue you anymore. You are truly the Lord's anointed. You're going to be a great king one day. And I'm sorry that I did that. But the very first verse tells us, David says in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape from his hand. And so you'll notice that David is not terribly confident in Saul's declarations about, okay, I'm going to leave you alone. David begins to realize if he stays anywhere in this land, it's not going to work out and that Saul is going to continue to pursue him. And so he and his 600 men arise and they go to uh, Gath and they meet a there Now, in verse 2, you might remember Achish, the king of Gath, because the last time David encountered Achish, he went there thinking he could hide that time. All of the town recognized David so that David, then remember, pretended to be insane and then had to go and flee yet again. So he's going to try to go back to the Philistines again and see how it goes. He goes to Achish and lives there among them, and it turns out that it works. In verse 4, we're told that Saul no longer looks for David because he recognizes that David is hiding among the Philistines, so much so that verse 7 says that David stays there a year and four months. So this is not a short stay. 16-month period that David and his men are going to live there. Well, as he's living there uh, amongst uh, Achish and these Philistines in Gath, he says to Achish, the king of Gath, I'm really not worthy, nor my men, to live here among your cities. Give us this city that you you kind of don't care about, and we'll just live over there. 
And so it turns out that that city that Achish gives him in verse 6 is the city of Ziklag. But notice something very important that's stated there. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The reason why that is important is because Ziklag was supposed to be a city of Judah. You read that in Joshua chapter 15 and verse 31. This was something that originally was supposed to belong to Israel in the first place. And so there's an interesting picture that's being shown to us as David comes into Philistia, if you will, and is given a town of Ziklag and essentially now gives it back to the kingdom of Israel again. It now returns to proper hands. And what you are seeing then in David as the anointed one is a picture of the borders of the kingdom beginning to expand. Even though we don't see David on the throne yet, it is fascinating to see that David is already getting cities back that should have belonged to Israel in the first place as he goes and he lives in Ziklag. Not only does that happen, but it says there in verse 8 that David and his men go up and they make raids against the Gershites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from as old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And so now you start seeing David being successful. And notice he's being successful against Canaanites and he's being successful against Amalekites. Well, remember... Under the days of Joshua, all the Canaanites were supposed to be driven out of the land and gone. And under Saul, the Amalekites were supposed to be utterly destroyed and be driven completely out as well. And so you get a picture then of David acting as a new Joshua, coming in and able to push out the Canaanites and able to do what Saul was unable to do finishing the job that Saul refused to accomplish. And so David as king then is pictured as the rightful king who is able to conquer God's enemies and finish the work that is given to him. And so it's a fascinating picture as you look at David here in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, and see this picture of even though he's not fully established his kingship yet, he's still just the anointed he's already doing the work already it's beginning to happen as cities are coming back into Israel's power and the driving out of the enemies is taking place it leads to a really fascinating moment because as chapter 27 of 1 Samuel ends you'll notice that Achish the king of Geth just trusts David completely and I would suppose with good reason He's lived there for 16 months. This is not like you just showed up last week, but he's lived there a very long time. Chapter 28 opens with the Philistines preparing for war against Israel. And Achish turns to David and says, you and your men are coming with me. And we're going to go out there and we're going to fight against Israel. And David's answer is very how shall we say, unknown what he's exactly getting at. Listen to what he says in verse 2. David says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. (laughs) All right, so does David mean he's going to go into battle against Israel and you're going to see what I'm able to do? Or are they going to go into battle and 
the Philistines are going to see what David can do. <laughs> We're not told exactly. It is interesting that the way this scene is set up is a hanging question mark. What is David going to do? Israel has essentially rejected him. The people in Israel keep betraying him. He's now living among the Philistines. The Philistines seem to trust him so much so that Achish says, get your guys and we're going to go fight Israel. And David says, well, you're going to see what we can do. Okay, well, what are you going to do, David? This seems to put him in a conundrum. It is one of the places that causes people difficulty. And they're trying to figure out, what is David doing? Has he really going to fight against Israel? Would he dare go against Israel and his people? But I want us to think for a moment that perhaps that's not such a radical problem anyway. Because one of the things that's going to be spoken of about our Lord anointed one is he does go up against physical Israel. Think about Jesus in the days that he walks the earth. He goes around talking about how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and there's not going to be one stone left upon another where he tells Caiaphas that he's the one doing it. You will see the son of man coming on the clouds that there is a picture of judgment that the Lord is going to bring against Jerusalem. In fact, that's what Peter stands up and preaches. And Acts 2 is that it is the time for the great and terrifying day of the Lord to come. And so it should not be out of the bounds of our minds to think that God would potentially bring judgment even by the hands of David against Israel. Because remember, that's what God made even promised to Israel. We see that happen with it being either the Babylonians who come up against Judah or whether it be the Assyrians that attack the northern nation of Israel. And even remember that these raiding bands like the Amalekites and Canaanites and these problems were because Israel had rejected God. We see that in the book of Judges. When the people turn away from God, what happens? God uses those nations as a judgment force. So I don't know that we need to read David and go, wow, he's in a real moral pickle right here. And I don't think that's the intent of the text, but rather to show the anointed will even go up against his own people if that's what's called for. There is a truth to the matter about how God does not show partiality. And if there is judgment that is necessary, then judgment will certainly come. The Philistines have been that picture throughout 1 Samuel, constantly being God's mechanism of judgment against Israel. But it's so fascinating. You'll notice that verse 2 just ends right there. It is like a good movie. It just hangs where you go, what is David going to do? Meanwhile, going on over here, the tension now turns back to Saul. And Saul is now in a predicament because the Philistines are mustering their forces and are about to attack. But the issue that Saul now has is a self-inflicted issue. Verse 3 reminds us Samuel's dead. Why is that important? Well, that's because that's the only way you really got a message from God. Remember, Samuel is the mouthpiece of God. And Samuel has been the one to tell Saul the message from the Lord. Here's what God says. Here's what you need to do. Now, mind you, Saul seemed to never pay attention to what Samuel was telling him. But nevertheless, that's what Samuel is doing is proclaiming that to Saul. Well, Samuel is dead. 
And remember what Saul has done is that he has wiped out the priesthood of Eli, except for one who escaped and is with David and it has the ephod and is able to inquire of the Lord of David. So how is Saul going to find out the will of the Lord? You see, he's got himself in a bit of a difficulty. And so it says in verse five of chapter 28 that when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he's afraid his heart trembled. Verse six, the Lord is not answering Saul. So here comes Saul's bright idea. I'll consult a medium. Now, we're told a little backstory about this, that one thing good that Saul had done is that in verse 3, it says at the very end of verse 3, Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That's what God wanted, to get rid of those diviners, get rid of those fortune tellers, get rid of all of those who would do such things. And Saul has done that. And so his desperation is so great that he's trying to find a medium. Well, one of the men tells him that there is uh, this, this medium that lives in indoor and perhaps she will be able to help you. Now, I think this is interesting. Saul then disguises himself to go and meet this woman. Obviously, the reason behind this is is it's been Saul's decree to have all of the mediums killed because as Saul goes to her, he tells her, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring a spirit up for me so that I can be able to get an answer. Her immediate response is, are you trying to get me killed? That's illegal. King Saul has said that we're not supposed to do that. And I think it is fascinating that essentially Saul says in verse 10 to her, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for doing this thing. So so I'm not trying to trap you. I'm not going to turn you in. You're going to be fine. Just go ahead and bring up the spirit for me. And so she says, all right, who do you want me to bring up? And he says, I want you to bring up Samuel. Verse 12 is amazing. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, we'd have no explanation of, you know, did Samuel go, that's Saul. (laughs) And she goes, why you tricked me? You're the king. What are you doing? But King Saul's not concerned about any of that. You'll notice that King, that King Saul then basically says in verse 13, don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now, it's important to understand this picture because when we think of diviners and the mystics and things like that, in our world, it's palm reading, tarot cards, and, and uh, crystal balls. And that's not how that looked back then. So you can't use the way we think of what that would have looked like. Back then, what they did was this medium would have a pit, basically. And they would put a sacrifice down into the pit. So imagine all the smoke is coming up out of the pit with the sacrifice there burning. And then they would supposedly call upon the spirit. And then this spirit would then come up. 
And notice that's the imagery that's happening here in verse 13. I see a God coming up out of the earth. What do you see in this smoke that's going on? I think it's pretty fascinating. She seems to be very surprised that this even happened. The way she's screaming about this. And you get the picture then of, well, I see this one coming up. And Saul says, well, what does he look like? And she gives a description. In verse 14, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And it says there that Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. I want you to think about the event that's happened here. You bring Samuel up. And one of the things that Samuel had told Saul, one of the final things that Samuel had told Saul is a reminder about obedience. And he had taught him this critical point about obeying the Lord. You know, you think you got these sacrifices, but obedience is most important. And one of the things that you have Samuel reminding Saul and teaching Saul is that rebellion is as the sin of divination. Samuel had said that to Saul. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. And for Saul to do this right here just shows the complete rebellion where Saul is at. That you are willing now to do the very thing that even Samuel used in his words to you and said, it's the worst thing you could do. It's rebellion. And he does it anyway. And I think God allows it for a reason because God has a message for Saul. And you'll notice the message. I, I, I love the, the scene that, that happens here. Verse 15, Samuel says to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? As you remember, Samuel was pretty much done with Saul after chapter 15. That was pretty much it. You have rebelled against God. And Samuel was done with him. We don't see their interaction any longer after that. And Saul's answer, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. This is the best answer ever. Verse 16, Samuel says, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. What Samuel just said was, you answered your own question. (laughs) Here's here's Saul saying, I don't know what to do. The Lord won't answer me. And Samuel goes, that's your answer. (laughs) You have figured out the answer. God's not with you. He's not going to answer you. He's not going to respond because you are in rebellion. The Lord has turned away from you. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day moreover the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Notice the message of Saul. God's not with you. God is fulfilling exactly what he told you, which is the kingdom is being taken out of your hand. 
and being given to another, being given to David. And did you notice the final words? You and your sons are going to be with me tomorrow. (laughs) You're not surviving but one more day because of your rebellion. And notice God is using the Philistines as judgment against Israel here. The Philistines are going to destroy Israel, going to kill Saul, kill the sons, and bring this about because of Saul's rebellion. So that's the message now that is given to Saul at this point. We come to chapter 29. The scene now is moving back. And the Philistines are all gathering together. Notice verse 1. It says that they have all gathered at Aphek. Now we might read that they're in Aphek. We go, well, who cares? This is another city. No big deal. The last time we saw the Philistines gathering at Aphek was in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we saw the Philistines just blow out the Israelites. Complete wipeout. Remember, that's when they thought, hey, maybe we should get the Ark of the Covenant and that will work better this time. And it doesn't work any better that time either. And so there is an ominous tone that is sitting here as chapter 29 opens is that the Philistines are at Aphek. This is going to go badly for Israel, which is exactly what Samuel just said to Saul moments ago in chapter 28. This is going to be a terrible wipeout of Israel and a judgment upon Israel. But as the Philistines are gathering, they see David and his 600 men. And they say, we're not going with him. (laughs) We know who he is. And we are concerned that we're going to get out there into the battle and he's going to turn against us, which, you know, that could mean what he said. You're going to see what we can do. We're not sure what he meant by that. And they think that might be what's going to happen. We're going to get in the heat of battle. David and his men are going to turn right around on us. And so they are going to wipe us out. And what is fascinating to see is that now with, with, a, with, um, Achish, as he starts now proclaiming the blamelessness of David. In verse 6, Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and it seems right that you should march out with me and in this campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. You can just hear Achish trying to convince the Philistines. He's blameless. He's been with me for, for all this time 16 months he's going to be a great fighter he's been going out and conquering all these other lands and nations on our behalf he's a great fighter and the philistines will not listen which is what the end of verse 6 goes on proving i think it is interesting to start noticing some of these pictures of the anointed because notice it is a gentile who's going to proclaim the innocence of the anointed How interesting to hear this happen where here is this Gentile ruler standing up and saying, David's blameless. There's nothing wrong with him. He's done everything great and there's no charge against him whatsoever, just like Pilate would have to do as a Gentile ruler over over the people of Israel and make the very same proclamations. And yet in the very same way, there's no success in swaying the masses. Uh, We see that here Achish is unable to convince the Philistines. Pilate is unable to convince the Jews. And so these things are set in motion. That leads to something interesting. David is sent home 
And chapter 30 shows what happens. He goes back to Ziklag with his 600 men. And you won't really believe what happens. He comes into Ziklag and we're told there in verse 1 that the Amalekites had made a raid against Ziklag and against the Negev and overcome Ziklag, burned it with fire. Verse 2, taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one. But they carried them off as they went. And so while they're preparing to go to battle against Israel, the Amalekites, they seem to be notorious for going after the the, the women and the children like they had done against Israel in the Exodus. They do it here now. They don't attack any of the warriors. They go in and in this terrible way go against Ziklag and they capture the women and the children and burn the city. It says in verse 4 that David and the the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. They're just absolutely devastated by this. Imagine you're preparing to go to battle and you've been rejected by the people there. And as you go back home, you just see everything that you had put all of your time and effort and where you lived all burned and not a single person remaining. They've all been captured. And notice in verse 6, all of David's men are ready to stone him. I said, you, you've, you've ruined us, which might remind you of Moses there. Where you see this other picture of, well, what are we going to do as we're in great distress? They immediately turn on David. They propose that they're going to uh, stone him because all the people in verse 6, bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But notice the rest of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And here we're going to now see an important contrast. In verse 7, David gets Abathar the priest. Remember, he's the one, last one that was left that ran away after Saul had all those priests killed. He gets Abathar and says, inquire of the Lord. Verse 8, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and will surely rescue. Notice this great contrast. Saul, when he tries to inquire of the Lord, God's not answering. When David inquires of the Lord, immediate response. It shows the relationship distinction. Saul has no relationship with God and God does not answer. And so Saul goes, I'll consult a medium. Samuel says, what are you doing? That is your answer. You've separated yourself from God and this is judgment against you. When David looks for an answer and inquires of the Lord, God responds, yes, go and you will be victorious. Go pursue the Amalekites and you will win. And so they begin to pursue, verse 9, they have the 600 men they go pursuing they get to the point of this pursuit that 200 men become too exhausted to continue and so we're told in verse 10 they are left behind at a brook so that david and 400 men can continue on in this pursuit they cut here's a real wrinkle in the story and see if you can catch why you'd have this strange detail put in here they come across an egyptian 
Notice verse 11. They find an Egyptian in the open country and they brought him to David. This seems like a massive interruption to trying to rescue Ziglag and get your wives and children back. Oh, by the way, there was an Egyptian. Okay. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. <laughs> so interesting. That, and here we go in our pursuit and we suddenly come across this Egyptian and David rescues him from death. Three days and three nights without water or food. And all of a sudden here David comes along and it says, revives his soul. <laughs> what a picture of what the anointed is ultimately going to do is here. He's going to come across people and he's going to give them life. This man's on the brink of death, revives his soul. The Egyptian says, I know where you need to go. I saw the Amalekites. Let me help you out. And so this is where you need to go. David and his 400 men, remember 200 left behind, continue the pursuit. They go in the attack, and so they go down and they utterly defeat the Amalekites. In wiping out the Amalekites, we're told then in verse 18, he recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. He rescued his wives. Verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. Here is David going in against the Amalekites and he just wipes them out, captures everything that belongs to them, take the spoils as well, small, great, whatever it was, and brings it back. Now, at this victory moment, you'd say, all right, yay. Some of David's 400 men, in fact, the text tells us in verse 22 that they are wicked, wicked, worthless fellows, say to David, those 200 men that stayed back there at the brook because they were exhausted, they don't deserve any of these spoils. It should just be for us 400 who finish the job. And they shouldn't have any part in that. Listen to David in verse 23. And David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be for who stayed with the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. You see what the anointed one did here? He goes in, he wins the battle, he captures all the spoils, and everybody who belongs to David, even if they were in the heaviest of the fight, or even if they stayed back with the supplies, equally got a portion of the spoils. Not only that... Not only did the 600 get the spoils, we're told David comes to Ziklag in verse 26. He sends some of the spoils to his friends. And notice from verse 26 to verse 31, it pictures him even giving spoils to some of Israel, giving it to Judah as the spoils of victory are being distributed amongst the people. Let's stop there in the story and let's let's take the lens out and let's start looking at the pictures of the anointed and what that will ultimately mean.
for us. We've talked as we've gone through these these chapters, some of the pictures that you see of the anointed, these great little images of what God is predicting that his anointed and the Christ will ultimately do. But the big one that comes up is just leading up to this moment in chapter 30 is a picture of when the anointed comes, he's going to conquer the enemies and share the spoils with his people. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. He makes this point. To each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So here is Christ giving the gift of grace. And how does he prove it? Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself captive And he gave gifts to his people. What Paul is doing in Ephesians 4 is saying what you see in Christ is the victorious king who conquers Satan, who conquers death, who conquers sin. And by doing so, he then turns around and takes the spoils of victory and distributes it to his people. And all who belong to him receive these gifts. I think it's important that it's read there. The given this grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here, all of his people, all who belong to him are all receiving this gift. Now remember how Paul described this earlier, this gift. Passage we know well, Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ. This passage is laced with look at what you have in Christ who's made us alive, who's raised us up, who has seated us in the heavenly places. These immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness being shown to us for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God. This is the picture of what Christ did. He fights Satan, sin, and death, is victorious, conquers it, destroys it, and distributes gifts to his people. The gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of being raised from death to life, the gift of being raised up with him, seated in the heavenly places, the immeasurable kindness. This is the grace, the gifts that are being displayed to us. And you might remember how the rest of Ephesians 4 goes because he's talking about some of the gifts being apostles, prophets, evangelists, these gifts that are on display. It is amazing that that's what you see here, especially because you will notice that 1 Samuel 30 wanted to highlight David made this a statute and a law that would be remembered forever. This is, like, this is a, a major signal of what the anointed will do. He will conquer the enemies and he will give gifts to his people. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 describes. And talking about the victory that is found in Christ as Jesus continues to reign and continues to exert his authority for he must reign until he puts all the enemies under his feet 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's a beautiful picture of the conquering that is found in Christ, which leads then, I think, to one of the most important messages of what these four chapters are driving at and helps us with our life today. The title of the lesson is The Lord is Faithful. And what you see in each of these chapters is a depiction of how God keeps his word. He always keeps his promises and he is always faithful. The first scene of that is in the negative. Saul cannot understand why God is not answering him. And Samuel's answer is, this is what God said. God said, because of your disobedience with the Amalekites, God's not with you anymore. The kingdom has been taken away from you. And how is it possible then for Saul to think that he's going to receive the blessings of God, receive answers from God when he's been living in rebellion against God? That's what Samuel is kind of saying. Why would you bring me up? What are you thinking? You know the answer. You don't have a relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, why do you think he's going to bless you? Why do you think he's going to answer you? God keeps his word. God is very faithful. And there is a negative side of that faithfulness in him doing always what he says. That means that we cannot think that we can live a life in disobedience and believe that God's going to be on our side, answering our prayers, giving us the A-OK and blessing us all along the way. He's not going to do it. I think it is interesting that Saul seems to somehow think that God should still be with him, even though he has ultimately turned God into a magic eight ball. You know, I want God to give me an answer, you know, okay, should I go up against the Philistines? You know, maybe, you know, that's, that's what he's doing with God. He doesn't care about God. He never cares about the will of God. He's not seeking to do what God wants. All he wants to do is just go, God, is it okay for me to do what I want to do? He's treating God as if he were a pagan God. And this is an important truth that's depicted to us many times in the New Testament. For the sake of time, I'll just use one example that the Apostle Peter gives. Where Here in in, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, you might remember where Peter makes the point for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way and showing them honor or else your prayers will be hindered. You see the idea? If you're living in rebellion to God, then why do you think your prayers are going to be answered? If you're not seeking the will of God, why do you think he's going to bless you? That's being drawn out by the Apostle Peter, what he's encouraging husbands to love their wives properly. Otherwise, your prayers are blocked. Well, Saul, why do you think God's not answering you? Because you're in disobedience. So it's an important picture that we see is that we cannot live a life of disobedience to God and think that God is going to be for us or help us. By contrast, you will notice the opposite was with David, wasn't it? That when David sought the Lord, that God was faithful to him. God told David that he would be successful against the Amalekites, and he absolutely was. And think about that. David and his men believed that. 
Here they are crushed beyond despair. They are looking at their city. It has been burned. Their wives and their children have all been captured. The men are about to stone David. David, it says, takes his strength in the Lord, inquires of God, and God says, go after and pursue them and you'll be victorious. And his men believe him and they go and they win. It is important to see the picture that God is also faithful to those who belong to him. So in contrast, you have to Saul. Why would you expect a blessing in your disobedience? And yet there is a hopeful reliance upon God during times where we are seeking him, that we depend upon him and look to him for guidance and help. But that doesn't mean there won't be suffering. We've seen this in David many, many times, and it's worth bringing out here. Just because David is seeking the will of the Lord and just because God is with him doesn't mean his city wasn't burned and his wives and the wives and the children weren't captured. We talked about that in the Sunday morning class that we had this morning, this important picture of understanding that God with us doesn't mean we will not experience any suffering. We won't go through any hardship. We won't go through any trials. In fact, it's through the difficulties and the trials that God is teaching us. And here is a picture of that where David is clearly with God. David is being answered by God. God gives him victory at every turn in the scene. And yet still he goes through suffering. He still goes through difficulty. And the big picture then that is before us is seeing God's ultimate faithfulness to his anointed. When you see the faithfulness of God, that he always keeps his word. There should be something always so precious, so hopeful, and so helpful to our walk with God, is that God makes promises and says things that he always keeps. And one of the promises that he made, the text that we read a little bit earlier, is that there is the gift of grace. That God is a forgiving God. And that he forgives sins. And if he says he forgives sins, then he means that. That we can have full confidence in. That the things that we have done in the past, that when we are repentant, we come to God and we confess our sins. We have every reason to believe that God does forgive those sins and they will not be held in account against us. It is such an amazing thing that God does that coming to us and trying to tell us he never breaks his word. He always does what he says. And then the biggest thing he wants us to constantly hold on to is I told you that I'll forgive you if you hold on to me. That he'll keep forgiving sins. And he'll continue to be our God and he'll continue to be with us all the way. Even for all of our mistakes and even for all of our failures and shortcomings. If we will come back to him. It's an amazing thing that we have in God. That there is never that moment where God says, well, you know what, too bad. But he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins when we come to him. 
And so the picture before us then is we can either believe in the promise of God and the promise of his grace as a gift for all who will believe in him, all who will be his people. Or we can be destroyed by the promise that God has said he will put all the enemies under his feet and there will be judgment for all who choose not to belong. Those are two promises he's made. And our choice is then, which where do you want to be on that? Do you want to be like Saul and stand against the will of God and experience judgment or be like David and trust in God and trust in those promises? To me, the words of the song, O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever, he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood he loved me ere i knew him and all my love is due him he plunged me to victory beneath his redeeming blood we're going to sing an invitation song in a minute that's going to say our habitation is in god that's where our hope lies and that's where our rest is let's go to god in prayer heavenly father It is amazing to see how utterly faithful you are to your word. But you always do as you say. You keep every promise that every word that comes out of your mouth that we are able to hold fast to in all the difficulties of life. Thank you, God, for being a faithful God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being so steadfast. And Lord, thank you for making great and precious promises. Promises like you will never leave us or forsake us. Promises that you will forgive us of our sins. The promise that you've given us grace. and That you've forgiven us for the terrible things that we've done. For the promise of always taking us back when we seek you with our heart. Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for being the faithful God to whom there is no shadow or variation from turning at all. That you are stable and always there for us. Lord, we pray for a far greater diligence and desire to obey you, that we would inquire of you and seek you with all of our heart, that we would look to you in faith, that we would understand that if we are in rebellion to you, that we cannot expect anything from you at all. God, help us in our rebellion, help us in our sins. We pray for forgiveness of them. We pray for strength to turn away from the temptations and sins that continue to bog us down and capture us. Give us the strength from your armor to help us through. Give us the strength that we need to conquer those sins so that we can be more faithful to you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Anyway, we can help you in responding to the Lord. We want to encourage you to do that. We sing this invitation song for that. If you're ready to come to Jesus, we encourage you to do that now while we stand and while we sing.